Coming up today, how NFTs conquered football and why captures are getting more confusing. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to the future of tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Amit Katwala, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when Airbnb announced it would be deploying anti-party technology to crack down on rowdy guests. The service will look at factors like reviews, account age, and the length and timing of the trip to determine whether a booking is intended to be used for hosting a party. It was also the week when UK communications regulator Ofcom revealed 16 to 24-year-olds watch seven times less broadcast TV than the over 65s. In March in the UK, people aged between 16 and 24 spent an average of 57 minutes on TikTok per day. And finally, this was also the week when Apple has told its employees they must return to the office in September for at least three days a week. Chief Executive Tim Cook said the move would preserve the in-person collaboration that is so essential to our culture. We've seen quite different approaches from the various big tech companies on this. I think some of them have been much more, you know, you can work from anywhere, but then some of the, I guess Apple's a bit more old school in this. Yeah. Yeah. So they tried um, last year to make people come back to the office, but it didn't really work because COVID <laughs> spiked again. And so uh, people couldn't go back. Um, but, but there was a big uh, backlash um, within the sort of employee ranks of people saying, you know, it's not fair because I've got used to living somewhere that's a lot cheaper and I don't really want to go back into the office all the time. And why is it that we go into the office anyway? So fair questions <laughs> that, have, that have posed some difficulty for uh, executives to try and answer. I think that non-big tech employees should take a leaf out of big tech's book if they want people to go back to the office more regularly. Like I'd be way more inclined to go into the office more regularly if there were like free snacks and beanbag chairs and like ping pong tables. So if anyone from Condé Nast is listening. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, should we go on to our fun facts? Matt Burgess, what have you got for us? So I've got a, a tedious guessing one this week, which is I'm going to ask you to guess what this uh, phobia is or is of. And it's a phobia called genuphobia. G-E-N-U, phobia. Amit, would you like to go first, perhaps? Yeah, so is it a fear of bendy things? Ooh, that's actually, like, uh, that's not bad. It's not right, but it's not bad in terms of, like, the overall sort of, uh, yeah, when I tell you what it is. Natasha, have you got any guesses at all? So, yeah, I unfortunately think I do know what this is because I took Latin at school briefly, and that was one of the, like, you know, the heads, shoulders, knees and toes song in Latin was, like, one of the things we had to know for some unknown reason so i actually i actually know that genoa is knees so it's a fear of knees <laughs> is that what i would say it is yeah exactly you are you are correct so that makes a lot of sense because the reason that i thought it was uh bending or bowing was from uh i thought to, to genuflex was to bow to someone but i guess it's actually to get onto one knee presumably that's why i thought it might be bowing or bending it wasn't, it wasn't a bad, it was an educated guess, but obviously you didn't have the uh, the Latin education that Natasha did at school. <laughs> Alas not. Um, all right. Finally. So, <laughs> I cash in. <laughs> finally, it's, finally, it's proving useful. Yeah. Um, so our second fact was for me. So I learned that since the start of 2017, Uber has lost an astonishing $27.3 billion, which is an amount equivalent to the entire market value of DoorDash, which is one of its big US rivals in the food delivery space. It's just astonishing to me how these kind of 
ride-hailing companies and gig economy companies can just be like hemorrhaging so much money over such a long period of time yet still remain active. That's such a good fact. And also it's, it's sort of astounding how they sort of shake it off. You've got to admire them, right, for that. And they're sort of like, oh, no, it's, it's fine. <laughs> Move I, on. I Nothing thought the tap was kind of running dry a little bit in recent years. But then you see big investments like the one that Adam Newman just secured in his like new real estate uh, company. And you kind of think, oh, there's just a, a kind of magic money tap that keeps flowing, but only to certain people and certain types of company. You've got to crack that nut. <laughs> I can <laughs> get in find there. Out what yeah. Yeah. I'm working on my pitch deck as we speak. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our first story, Matt. This week for our first story, we are talking about football. So the new Premier League season started a few weeks ago. And one thing you might have noticed if you've been following the game at all is a rise in the number of clubs being sponsored by cryptocurrency websites and services. Amit, you've been looking into how crypto and NFTs in particular have conquered football. Yeah, that's right. So football fell quite hard for NFTs or non-fungible tokens and as they boomed and busted over the last 18 months thousands of fans got sucked into dubious projects that were endorsed by footballers. At the same time as this was happening we also saw that the the sponsorship market had kind of been flattened by COVID so we also saw blockchain companies kind of swooping in to sponsor big teams and events they were basically the only companies with any money flowing around to throw at marketing. So uh, this season, uh, Lionel Messi and Neymar are walking out for the French club Paris Saint-Germain with Crypto.com on their shirts. And the implication of all this advertising is kind of clear. It's like, you know, buy into crypto, hold on to your, you know, purchases and be bold and brave or whatever and you can be as rich as your heroes yeah and this isn't this isn't just a football thing but we're focusing on football here because um of uh well this is a subject you're interested in the premier league started recently and also it's one of the most high profile examples of sort of crypto bleeding into sport but it has been in sort of the nba and other sports as well but we've got this idea of you can be as rich as your heroes you can make a huge amount of money if you're following your clubs and then also just yeah getting involved in crypto as well but I guess the truth has probably been quite different. Yeah, so the, the, there's been a big collapse in NFT values that's been well publicised and football's not been immune to that. So The Athletic, uh, which is a sports website, um, has kind of detailed numerous examples of player and club endorsed crypto projects that have tanked in value at the same time as the cryptocurrency market has collapsed. I'm just going to focus on one of them at the moment because there's so many of these that I could have focused on, but I'm going to focus on the Ape Kids Football Club, which was uh, in the news because it was endorsed by England and Chelsea footballer John Terry. So this was kind of a very low effort NFT project. It had a kind of flimsy backstory about a magical world where apes ruled the metaverse. And the thing that they'd created was essentially 6,000 drawings. <laughs> I mean, this whole thing is slightly ridiculous. You kind of have to suspend your disbelief to a little bit when you're talking about NFTs, I think. But anyway, the product that they'd created with product in inverted commas was 6,000 cartoon monkeys in football kits, um, which they launched and then had to sort of tweak when they realized that they didn't actually have the rights to use any of the club logos on the kits so anyway this project launched and the apes were trading at about 600 dollars each um but after launch the price collapsed now they're worth about 65 dollars or less um a lot of players who had hyped up these nfts at launch kind of quietly deleted their social media posts um I spent some time on Discord, which is where a lot of NFT projects kind of organize around and, and where they have their communities. And today, Ape, Football Kid, Ape Kids Football Club has been rebranded. So it's now called Intermeta FC, kind of trying to tie into the metaverse hype, I guess. Um, but the Discord channel is a ghost town. It's like, you know, four or five active people who've bought into this project kind of pestering the organizers, pestering the organizers about when they're going to see a return on their investment. Um, there was a recent discussion about 
how the owners of these cartoon monkeys could target the World Cup in Qatar to try and rekindle interest in the project and drive up the value of their NFTs. Yeah, the, the Ape Kids Football Club. That's, um, I mean, that's probably a, a starting point for, for where things might uh, might have started to go wrong. Mm-hmm. But as you sort of alluded to, this is only one of many of these projects that has been very similar. And a lot of these would have actually been created or at least first thought of during some of the uh, biggest sort of like crypto boom that we saw last year when prices were sky high and lots of people were wanting to get involved in crypto and NFT investing. We're talking of like millions of uh, tens of millions being sold on various NFTs um but since then obviously there has been the big sort of crash in prices crypto has seen huge downturns nfts aren't selling for as much money like how has this downturn affected all of what's going on within football as well with with uh, crypto yeah. nfts yeah so obviously the prices that football nfts and all nfts are trading at has fallen a lot but i think because of the kind of lead time and the lag it takes in terms of launching a product a lot of products which were conceived during the kind of peak of the boom are only now coming to market and they're still being launched and the people are still going ahead with them. So the kind of spread of NFTs and crypto within football doesn't really show any signs of slowing down. And it's got kind of the formal badge of approval in some cases. So Italy's Serie A and La Liga in Spain recently signed deals to sell digital collectibles of in-game action. The FA in England is looking for partners for NFT projects for the England national teams. Recently, um, the auction house Sotheby's in New York sold or helped FC Barcelona sell a digital sculpture of a famous goal by the footballer Johan Cruyff, uh, which sold for $550,000. And the Premier League is going ahead with plans to launch an NFT collection despite the downturn. What, what do we mean by a digital sculpture? So it's essentially a video. It's an MP4 of Johan Cruyff that someone's drawn on a computer and he's scoring this famous goal with like a kind of flying volley. But instead of just being the video itself, they've like done a digital video of him where he's kind of, he looks like a gold statue and he's dripping in gold and all this kind of stuff. It's very subtle. Um, And uh, yeah, that's it. It's like artwork, I guess, but fundamentally it's an mp4 or a link to an mp4 stored on a blockchain somewhere. Yeah, which through this way, the person who spends $550,000 has the rights to own that. Um, that's, That's how all of this works. And like, when a lot of these launches have happened and football clubs have got involved, there's been a lot of talk about sort of um, the clubs building a community and giving something back to the fans. Like, what's sort of like driving this interest in it? Is it is it just money? Essentially, yeah. Yeah, it's really hard not to be cynical. Like, I think football in particular has always attracted these kinds of things, like get-rich-quick schemes or whatever. It's because of its because football's so popular, because of the demographics of its fan base, you know, young men, frankly, with disposable income in a lot of cases. We've always seen, there's always been a history of of these kinds of gambling and gambling adjacent companies, like wanting to get involved in football. So we saw gambling sponsorships, we've seen like foreign currency trading apps, we've seen things like Football Index, which tried to turn like fantasy football into like a stock market, so you could buy and sell shares in players and collect dividends. Um Football index obviously collapsed spectacularly last year and took more than $100 million or £90 million of people's money with it. So I very much see a lot of these NFT projects as being like the next logical step in that journey or the kind of, you know, those were the ancestors of, of you know, what we now have with NFTs. But I think what we might see is that there's been a lot of scrutiny and attention on, on traditional gambling advertising in sport. 
there's been talk that, you know, gambling advertising on shirt sponsors might get banned. There's been a clampdown on using celebrity, like, you know, ex-footballers to promote your your online casino or whatever. So what many people think will happen is that when gambling advertising does get banned, a, a tidal wave of kind of crypto firms and NFT projects are going to rush in and fill that space. Yeah, and I guess the reason why we're talking about this as well is while it is a story that touches upon football a bit, it's not necessarily about football itself. It's about people trying to ride the wave of these new technologies, make potentially make a lot of money or or be uh, sort of enticed to invest a lot of money into this. And quite naturally, I, I think in some ways, football is a home for that. You obviously get fans who go to games, buy season tickets, spend thousands on them. When they're going to games, will be buying uh, merchandise or pies or drinks and everything around the entire sort of day out. And, and the people that go to a lot of these games are hugely invested both in money and also just their time and their their passion and their feelings into the clubs that they are supporting so in some ways it almost feels a little bit natural that fans would want to get involved in something else that is uh, linked to their club and if there's a potential for them to make money or feel more involved um, you can see why people would do this but like how did we get to the starting point with um, like crypto around football uh, altogether? Yeah, I mean, like the, the difference between the stuff that you mentioned there and, and what we're talking about now is that a pie is a pie has utility, right? A football kit has utility. You can wear it to show your support. You can eat the pie. You can take an Instagram photo of the pie and you know share the quintessential match day experience or whatever, right? You're you're buying something, even if you're just buying the experience of having the inside of the roof of your mouth burnt off by <laughs> scalding hot gravy. Um, but this all kind of started so the first crypto projects did try and in football did try and provide some utility so a lot of them were based on like trading card games so like things like panini sticker albums and tops trading cards and things like that so there was a project called crypto strikers which was one of the first ones that launched around the 2018 world cup um and then in, in the same year um a french entrepreneur called nicolas julia founded a company called so rare which is like a digital fantasy football game so you buy cards that represent real world players and you pit them against each other to win real world cash it's kind of a mixture of like fantasy football like magic the gathering fifa ultimate team on the blockchain but although this was an nft like crucially the words non-fungible token didn't appear anywhere in the promotional material he he put this on the blockchain because he wanted to give users ownership over their digital assets he wanted to give them the ability to trade them and sell them and port them to other games if he wanted to so that's where it all started and then from there around the same time we also saw the launch of things like fan tokens so uh, there's a website called socios.com which has helped a lot of clubs sell like fan tokens to their supporters so this is a way of like i guess showing your support for your club by like buying in and it's almost like a club currency but and in exchange for buying in you're offered some sort of utility so it might be a vote in how the team is run for instance or exclusive money can't buy experiences or things like that but Although that's the theory, it's this idea of like kind of direct democracy and, you know, giving control back to the fans. What actually happens is the fans generally get to vote on sort of trivialities like what music the team runs out to or what soft drinks get sold at half time. There's a really good example of this. So um, there's an English club called Crawley Town that's owned by a crypto funded American consortium. So they, they let fan token owners vote on what position the club should sign any player in. So the club, the NFT holders all voted and they voted that they wanted the club to sign a midfielder. So the club went out and signed the midfielder. And you think, okay, well, great. That's a really good example of NFT users getting some utility for the money they've put into buying these fan tokens. But 
the club then also brought a forward and a and defender at the same time anyway. So it's like, well, actually, yeah, my vote, <laughs> as my vote actually made much difference at all. Not really. Yeah, it feels like if that was a decision that was going to be the only one that was taken, then it would have felt a bit more for those people that maybe made that decision around it. And I guess there is a, if you are running a business, which all football clubs, etc. are, then there's a tricky sort of like balance to like how much um, uh, power you want to give people that you uh, that are bought or invested in sort of like your your tokens, etc. So when, when did things start to, to really change in terms of um, like this going i don't want to say downhill but the cynical the cynical part of me is saying when did this start going downhill yeah well i think you can trace it back to do you remember the beeple auction that we talked about a couple of years ago where this huge nft art sale for like 70 million dollars that's really what kickstarted the revolution because then the whole market just exploded so then there was things like board ape yacht club where you had these kind of profile pictured projects kind of changing hands for hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. And after that, you just saw money getting pumped in and sort of what one person I spoke to called unrealistic growth. And initially, as we've talked about, these projects at least pretended to be offering something tangible. So it was like meet and greets with players, match tickets, exclusive content. But as the market boomed, you increasingly saw these like vaporware projects that promised to deliver a video game or, you know, buy a club or something like way down the line, but never actually did it. Or you saw actual scams where people took a load of money sold a load of nfts and then disappeared into uh pun intended the ether um so yeah a lot of the people so i spoke to a guy called tim mangle who's like a consultant who helps clubs launch nft projects and he says that when he speaks to them a lot of them are like oh we just want to make loads of money overnight and the, the thing that struck me as i was reporting this piece is that like everything's sort of backwards like Saying that you want to launch an NFT project doesn't really make any sense because an NFT and blockchain is like infrastructure, not an investment. Buying an expensive digital asset because it's labeled as an NFT is like rushing to buy your team's new kit because you can pay by Visa or because it gets delivered by DHL. We're focusing too much on the infrastructure rather than the thing itself when the infrastructure should be kind of irrelevant. Like... NFTs, and this is what a lot of people that I spoke to you told me, NFTs are not a market category. They're just a kind of underlying technology. But because of all the hype and the kind of boom around them, you've had people that are trying to create NFTs where the only selling point is that it is an NFT, which makes very little sense as a long-term asset. And that all really, I guess, brings the question to, should some of these things even be NFTs then? Well, that's the thing. So like a lot of these early blockchain-based sports products like like Sayrari, they worked really hard to abstract the complexity of the crypto world away. They wanted to shield their users from things like gas fees and secure wallets and all this kind of nonsense that comes with trying to buy and pay for stuff with cryptocurrency. But some of the newer projects make no effort to do that because, and this is me maybe being slightly cynical, but the only reason they exist is maybe to draw this vast pool of like cash rich soccer fans into the crypto world to sort of keep the, you know, what some people argue is a Ponzi scheme to keep the liquidity flowing to stop the bottom of falling out of it. And given the complexity of the crypto market, you know, the wildly fluctuating cost of doing business on Ethereum and the risk of being scammed by hackers or by the people actually selling you the NFT in the first place, you do have to wonder whether it's worth the headache of putting something on the blockchain when that thing could just be a normal members area on a website with a login and a password. It doesn't sound quite as uh, fancy or as appealing, (laughs) though, in some ways, in like, if you're 
purely thinking about this in like technological circumstances. And I, I guess as well with sort of the amount of money and hype that has swirled around NFTs. Um, I mean, for the last couple of years, all of us sort of working at Wired have had uh, emails coming into our inboxes all the time being like, there's a new NFT launching. I'm pretty sure every type of industry or every type of brand have, have tried to get into NFTs in some ways. Like this, people involved in football aren't going to stop uh, with NFTs at the moment, are they? No, and I think there's some there's a small group of people that are still kind of hopeful that they can do this the right way. You know, they care about ownership and verifiability and scarcity and all this kind of stuff. There is like some hypothetical world out there where the blockchain does what it promises to do and empowers greater levels of, you know, engagement among fans. Uh, you couldn't see my scare quotes then, but it was <laughs> it was an ironic use of the word engagement because I think it's quite the whole thing is quite a spurious concept really. But like a world where supporters kind of happily trade digital assets and unlock authentic experiences that bring them closer to their clubs. But I think a lot of the people that are trying to do this properly are sort of looking at the frenzy of the last 18 months and thinking, well, how do we distance ourselves from this? Because, you know, NFTs are kind of toxic at the moment and football clubs have never been good at like long-term planning. And that's what this needs. It needs long-term planning and investment from someone who, or from organizations who's reason for doing it isn't purely to just make a load of money like fans are already quite sick of being treated like cash machines by billionaire back clubs and they are turning to turning against nfts really like nfts are when clubs launch nfts they are normally responded to with a bunch of angry comments on social media recent launches by liverpool and psg saw thousands of nfts going unsold and you know even a lot of these club back projects are pretty shambolic so i watched a sort of basically like a, a, an incident play out in real time when I was lurking on the discord of like the LFC heroes project, which is Liverpool's official, one of Liverpool's official NFTs where they hadn't coded it properly, basically. So users that were an NFT that was supposed to be for exclusively for certain people, there was like a loophole that basically enabled anyone to access it. So, you know, these things are quite often poorly thought out and badly put together, but the NFTs still kind of keep coming. And it's unlikely that they're going to stop, as we say. But I guess with any of these types of things, uh, probably most things that we talk about on the podcast, you can't sort of like separate it from um, some of the wider context as well. Like this is also about, um, I guess, the rush of crypto and NFT to football is about the wider um, ecosystem of the game itself and ownership and everything around the sport. Yeah, like I think... This is the kind of thing that's. I was trying to. When I was writing this piece, I was thinking about ownership and like who owns football. And I guess this question around who owns a moment like the Johan Cruyff goal that got sold for $500,000 at auction to some anonymous buyer, like the person who bought that sculpture doesn't own that moment in any real sense. In the same way that, you know, it belongs to like the fans, I guess. And I think this is the kind of question that fans have been grappling with because they've seen clubs that started out as, you know, you know, the the team of the factory workers of England or whatever being bought by a Russian who wants to launder his reputation or a Saudi, you know, state organisation that wants to, you know, extend its soft power or whatever. And it, it comes back to this question of ownership. And I think one thing that struck me as a football fan is that this commodification of, like, memories themselves of things that shouldn't be sold kind of hurts in a way because every other aspect of sport the sport has been sold you know everything's got logos plastered over it it's owned in abroad or whatever and you know the adverts that you see on the side of the pitch are for like indonesian tractor manufacturers and things like that it feels a very different game to the one that maybe it was in the 80s or 90s and i think people maybe thought that 
the moments themselves, the memories themselves were the one thing and left in football that couldn't be sold. And seeing people slap slap an NFT sticker on it and sell it for $500,000 at auction maybe is a little bit depressing. Yeah, it's a very good point. And as always, we want to hear from you if you have uh, invested in any NFTs, even if they're not football ones or if they're ones related to other sports or is crypto in, in getting involved more in the sports that you like. Let us know at podcast at wired.co.uk. Our second story this week is about identity verification. Natasha, we have been looking into the weird world of online captures. That's right. So captures, if you don't know them, they're short for completely automated public Turing tests. And they were created in the year 2000 um, to basically tell computers and humans apart. Uh, they clamped down on bot behavior on- online whilst also training AI to understand the world from text to images. Um, you might know them as ticking a box that says, I am definitely 100% not a robot. You might know them as like having squiggly little letters that you have to sort of decipher and write down in a box. Uh, you might know them as, again, letters that are sort of superimposed on each other that you're supposed to decipher which letters they mean and then writing them in the box or you might know them as a series of about nine images where you're supposed to identify something in the images and prove thus forth that you're a human rather than a bot and this is on a lot of websites um, tends to be around the point where you need to verify an account where you need to verify um, a payment um, and it's part of the user experience on most of the internet Now, the problem here is that people are saying it's getting a bit out of hand. Yeah, so captures are having a little bit of a moment. And the reason we're talking about them is, as you say, Natasha, what started off as being, you know, click on all the traffic lights or click on all the cars is getting a little bit more difficult. Yeah, so there was a thing recently about people were just going a bit insane over this one particular challenge that was set to them by captures, which is a series of nine pictures of dogs. And the task was you have to say which dogs are smiling. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the world of science has determined that it's not possible to tell if a dog is smiling. Now, I think instinctively, if you love dogs like I do, you kind of know if they're smiling or not. But, you know, these dogs in particular, it was a bit confusing because one dog looked a bit surprised. The other dog looked like maybe it was mid-bark. It wasn't clear whether these dogs were smiling or not smiling. I'd say two out of the nine dogs were maybe definitive dog smiles if you could call them that, which science does not support. Therefore, people were saying, you know, this has just gone too far. And, and really, it's, it's, it's just getting a bit silly. Because in the end, you're clicking on things that don't prove anything one way or the other. And it's all a bit stupid. There was another example of this, that again, did the rounds, especially on social media, where people were asked to identify clouds in the shape of horses. But then some of the horses were sort of half cloud, half horse. Some of the horses were elephants um, and it was it was all very uh, pointless. And I think, you know, there's, there's been a problem for a while now where people have found that having captures as part of the user experience has been more of a friction point for them rather than a friction point for bots and that they haven't really been enjoying it. So for a lot of people, these things were a the, the last straw, basically. Can I just chime in with my least favourite 
slash most annoying capture that I've come across. And it's not, yeah, it's, it's not exciting as in like it's a cloud of horses or a horse of clouds or whatever. But um, <laughs> there was one that I did recently that was like uh, click on the, it was nine images ones. Um, and it was like click on all the bridges in this image. And like half of the bridges weren't bridges. Some of them were like overpasses and like other <laughs> structures that were built over stuff. Like I would call a bridge something that like goes over like a river or something very specific and not another piece of highway and it's just like this is not a bridge and I think I had one with like chimneys as well and it's like click on all the chimneys and some of them were chimneys but other but just like ventilation small ventilation shafts or stuff and it's like this is like I know I'm being tedious but like <laughs> this is just yeah it's too much it was the principle of the thing and you knew basically they wanted that it wanted you to click on those verifying that they're bridges and chimneys when you knew in your heart of hearts there were neither of those things. Always good to hear from bridge enthusiasts, Matt Burgess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Natasha, aside from being kind of annoying, like, why mm-hmm. why is it a problem? I mean, obviously, for, for us, it's kind of, you know, slightly irritating if we have to redo the capture because we got it wrong. It delays us getting into the website. But why is this such a big problem? Yeah, so uh, captures basically run on around 15% of the internet as of January 2022. And uh, a lot of people find this really, really difficult. So already, you know, a lot of a lot of internet processes are not built for everyone, um, but they're especially not built for people who are elderly and people who are disabled. So um, Chris Stoker Walker, who is the writer for this capture piece, spoke to someone who regularly um, helps clients um, who are elderly to try to discern the difference between a scuff of paint on a sidewalk or a proper sidewalk um, which is asked in a, in a normal capture things like you know is this a tree they can't really see properly um, if they're confronted and then if they're con- confronted with something as intangible sort of is this dog smiling or not they're sort of stumped um, the same happens for, for disabled people who have really been left out of, of this whole process it's, it's not really possible for for people who are, who are not um, regular internet users to find this easy and even they are struggling with a lot of these things and the problem here is that they're getting more and more complex. And I think a lot of people are complaining because they see this, because uh, it is this, is, as a way to train AI. And people are going, well, I'm doing free work. It's really hard. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't want to do it. And I don't, I don't get it right. So you have to end up, if you don't get it right, doing it again and again and again if you do. And that's really frustrating and, and not nice. So it's the lack of inclusivity, but also the fact that people just don't like doing work for free to train AI anyway so, so with on the whole training io point so obviously with the, the squiggly letters and stuff like that my understanding is that that was being used to like digitize old books so it was like for optical character recognition where the, the algorithm couldn't determine what letters were what so we were kind of helping them out by using our human brain to teach the ai what different letters look like in different contexts mm-hmm. why are we training an ai to tell whether a dog is smiling or whether a, a horse looks like a, what are we doing yeah, so this is actually more about a training computer vision. Um, so it's, it's teaching it what a dog looks like when it smiles, teaching it what a tree looks like and what a chimney looks like and what a bridge looks like. Um, and this is something that, that has been going on for some time now. And it's, it's something that people just really don't enjoy. I think that if you think about the history of this, you've got to remember that a lot of the big tech companies have been involved in the development and rollout of, of Capture. So it was... It was um, the Geolingo founder, Luis Van An, who, who developed it, it was Capture and Recapture and sold it to Google in 2009. And since then, it's, it's sort of dominated the internet. Um, the interesting thing, I suppose, about what's going on lately is that not only are users kind of pushing back, back against it, but also companies are too. So Apple earlier this year um, basically said it was going to give it the boot. 
and no longer allow capture on its devices. Instead, it was going to um, basically develop its own thing called privacy access tokens, which will supposedly be doing it in a more sort of privacy authentic way. They're basically saying that it has um, an impact on email analytics and our tracking and doesn't doesn't like it. So it's going to replace it with all that um, and sort of do, you know, a more kind of privacy related element. <laughs> it's a rebranding of privacy passes, basically what people are doing. Um, but yeah, so that's that's basically, that might mean that captures are less prevalent online than before, um, which is good news for people who hate them. Yeah. So my question is like, obviously there'll come a point when, like computers are getting better and better and better and one of the reasons captures are, get, are getting more complicated is because computers are getting better at solving the ones we've we've given them so mm-hmm. is that why we're kind of in this mess where they're getting so complicated because all the low-hanging fruit has kind of been solved by computers so it's only the really complicated problems like is this dog smiling that, that still separate us from from the algorithms <laughs> yeah, I mean, you'd think it would get better than that. I mean, there's there's other options at play here that are supposedly going to fix that very issue. So there's stuff that's in development with Google and other companies where they're, they're trying to do like mini games that engage people a little bit more and don't kind of feel as much as a chore as captures do. Um, but I, I think one of the interesting things that Chris kind of um, unveiled in his piece was the the attitude of, of the capture people, which is basically they're saying, we understand it's getting more difficult. We understand that you're not enjoying it. However, that doesn't matter. And I think we can hark back to Matt Burgess's example of the bridges and the chimneys to explain why. So they were saying, it doesn't matter if you get it wrong, as long as everyone else is getting it wrong then that's fine. Because what they're really looking for is like human behavior. So if everyone's clicking on, you know, things they think are chimneys that Matt Burgess thinks are not chimneys, then, <laughs> then we're okay. As long as the majority of people do the exact same thing, it's absolutely fine. So that's that's the tweaking that's happening in the background. So in the end, I suppose it would mean that if everyone more or less thinks that two out of nine dogs are smiling, as long as everyone thinks the same thing, it's going to be okay. Like the system will let you through rather than torture you into looking at hundreds of pictures of dogs over and over again. <laughs> That's the theory anyway. Whether that works that way, I don't know. But then aren't we at risk of training the AI to think the dog's smiling when the dog isn't actually smiling? Or, you know, won't the the, the, the public perception of what a bridge is be changed by this... this uh change oh, i mean you know this is like the, the very minor terrible consequences <laughs> of, of what could happen thanks to thanks to you know relying on crowdsourced information um that that's that's a big it's a big problem right because i think people do get used to kind of gaming things themselves and then they'll just try and get the right answer rather than something that actually is really the right answer but i think in the grand scheme of things you know if you want to train your ai to view things properly pay someone to do it don't ask the internet <laughs> to do it for you. <laughs> that would be my theory. And and I don't, I don't, I, I've never been a kind of advocate of this being a very secure kind of thing. I think maybe in the, in the beginning when AI wasn't so sophisticated, it might not have been able to understand, you know, uh, letters and numbers and things like that. I get that, but I, I don't, I don't really see how it's that safe if you see what I mean, at this at this point, um, without the added clouds and horses, which are yeah. uh, just too hard for human beings too. Everything's too hard. Make it easy. That's that's all I say. So are we looking at the end of the capture? Does this mean, do these new verification systems you're talking about and the changes Apple bringing in, are they going to 
kill the capture completely and replace it with fun mini games or what's going to happen? No. So um, apparently uh, it's just going to make it better. So um, yeah, it might end up being, as I was saying before, just a little puzzles that people are asked to solve. So this is the evolution from, from one thing to the other. So we we're talking earlier about how it used to be like numbers or clicking a box every once in a while. You might still get that if you're lucky. Um, but, but it might just evolve into something different. Like, you know, can you, put, can you put the boxes in a circle? Can you, you know, put this in the right order? That kind of thing, um, which will be a different kind of way of, of doing things and kind of the next step of, of evolution, I suppose, for both us, captures and AI. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to That's be in a situation fun. where, like, I, I get, like, that day's word all wrong or whatever and I can't get into my email as a result. It sounds really <laughs> annoying. <laughs> yeah, I hope that won't be the case. <laughs> uh, I mean, again, it's it's one of those things where I think, you know, as they come up with new solutions for security purposes, I think, you know, captures have maybe become, and you know, argue for me if you think that this is wrong but i think captures have become maybe a little bit less relevant now we're using more facial recognition um on our devices it doesn't feel like you necessarily need like if you're using apple pay it doesn't feel like you need to then also fill in a capture do you see what i mean it's it's not super necessary so maybe it will just fade out but the people that are behind capture are definitely sure that it will not it will just evolve into something bigger better funner yeah, so. I guess the challenge is how you balance that need for identification with the need for privacy. Anyway, it's a really interesting mm. story. So do you know your thoughts if you're listening? Let us know at podcast at wired.co.uk. Um, that's about all we've got time for, I think, this week. So we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.